Well, let me start by asking you a question. And this is almost a rhetorical question, but I'll ask it anyway. How many of you have ever been on a road trip? Should be just about everybody, right? How many of you are on a journey of, of a lifetime? How many know that tomorrow, I believe it's tomorrow, is the month of Elul, which means we get to prepare. Now, let me ask another question. When you're going on your trip, do you wait for the last minute and say like five minutes before you're ready to go, oh, you know, I need to go pack up my clothes? Well, maybe some of you do, or maybe I shouldn't ask that question. I don't know. You prepare. And so I'm excited to share with you today some things we can do to prepare for next month. Because next month is a month of preparation because Tishrei is the high holy days. Rosh Hashanah, the new year, or the head of, literally the head of the year, and then Yom Kippur, and, and then, of course, Sukkot and Simchat Torah. So we want to get prepared and spiritually prepared. So uh, I have prepared for you an interesting uh, a message here. And I'm not big into titles and outlines, but I have one here for you if you're taking notes. Uh, I've, I've uh, labeled this Elul, Preparing for the High Holy Days of Tishrei. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, and I'll give you the outline here first. The first one is seeking God's voice. So the first one is seeking God's voice, then seeking God's glory, and then seeking or emulating God's holiness. So those are the three areas we're going to gravitate around. And so the first one is seeking God's voice. So what I would like us to do is if you have a Bible or a, uh, a, a, a tablet, turn to Exodus 3, 1 to 8. Our first point is cultivating an attentive ear. I based the first section on cultivation. If you ever had a plant, you cultivate it, don't you? If you have a rose bush, you cultivate it. You take care. You water it. You trim it. You deadhead it. You put fertilizer. You cultivate it. So throughout the five points, the first one we'll look at is cultivate an attentive ear. An attentive ear. So if you have a Bible, look at chapter 3, verse 1 to 8. Now Moshe was pastoring the flock of Yitro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock into the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moshe said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up? Now when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and he said, Moshe, Moshe, and he said, Hineni, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place, or Hamakom, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your fathers. Elohe Avraham, Elohe Yitzhak, Ve'elohe Yaakov, right? Then Moshe hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land. So our first point here I'd like to look at is cultivating an attentive ear. In this pericope or paragraph, we are reacquainted with Moshe, or Moses, in a burning bush. 
You notice that Adonai appeared to Moshe in a theophany. You know what a theophany is? A theophany is, the, is a theo, God. Phani is the idea of a form. So God appears in a visible form, not his actual person, but he appears in a form that you or I or whoever he's appearing for can understand and see there in front of divine. So a theophany is a form that God takes in order for man to be able to see who he is uh, and speaking to him. So Adonai had to get Moses' attention so that God's intentions could be known. He had to do a burning bush idea to get his attention. Okay. Now it's interesting that unless God reveals himself to man, we have no chance of knowing him. Now, yes, we live in a new covenant time when Yeshua, but how many here have seen Yeshua? We, we don't, right? So unless he reveals himself to man, we have no chance of knowing him. There's a beautiful passage in Job chapter 9, verse 11 to 12, and I'll just read it to you. He makes a valid claim for the necessity of God revealing himself to man. Listen to this. This is Job speaking. If he passes me by, I wouldn't see him. If he goes right by, I wouldn't recognize him. If he snatches something, who can stop him? Who can ask, what are you doing? So unless God reveals himself to us uh, or, or to his servant, we'll not be able to understand or see what he's getting at. So what's the application here for you and I? Hashem must break into our lives with something that gets our attention. It may as subtle as a word from the Bible, a quest to serve the body of Messiah, a message of worth through maybe looking at a flower. Rarely do you actually hear voices, yet here we see that Moses did hear a voice. The point is, and this is the point we all need to get here, we need to cultivate an attentive ear, an attentive ear. In other words, let's not have God always have a burning bush every time he wants to speak to us, right? We need to avoid burning bush syndromes, right? So, Because sometimes we get addicted to action and big bang and boom and all kinds of sounds of fury. But we need to cultivate an attentive ear, being attentive. So the first point is creating an attentive ear. The second point is cultivating an obedient ear. Now, in verse 4, Moshe responds to God's voice. He said, Moshe, Moshe, with the words of a true servant. In Hebrew, he says, Hineni. Behold, here I am, Hineni. That should be our response when God calls you to some, some service, some uh, plan he has. Your response should be, Hineni, speak, Lord, I'm your servant. Because the two words do not go together, no and Lord, right? should never be no, Lord. It should be yes, Lord, never no, Lord. So if he's your Lord, you should never seek to get out of something. Now, of course, we know Moses tried to get out of his uh, uh, calling. In fact, I counted about 12 times throughout Exodus and in some numbers where he kept on saying, bad speaker that I am, why did you pick me? Twelve times he said, no, no, please, don't, don't send me. But he did say, Hineni, here I am. So that should be our response, Hineni. So um, the point here is, let's avoid selective hearing. You know what I mean by selective hearing? It's, it's kind of like uh, if your husband is, now most of the men are gone on retreat, so I can say this for most of you ladies here. Your husband's reading a reading newspaper, and, and his wife is speaking. And he says, honey, are you listening? What does he say? I hear. What does he hear? What did I say? Uh, 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 uh. He heard, didn't he? But he didn't listen. You know, Shema, we do it every week. Shema, Yisrael, Shema. It's not really so much like hearing, but it's listening intently to obey. So the idea here for us is that we need 
to not have selective hearing and just pick and choose whenever we want to hear God say something. We need to be able to say, yes, Lord, even the hard things I will do. So hearing what you want and ignoring the rest will not lead to uh, being a good servant. So the first point we talked about is cultivating an attentive ear. The second point is cultivating an obedient ear. Now, the third point is cultivating an attentive ear. Now, uh, actually, the third point we have here is create a holy ear. That's, that's the third point. Create a holy ear. So in Exodus 3, 5, and let me just reread this again, if you've got 3, verse 5. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place, in Hebrew, hamakom, the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Okay? So uh, we see that God informs Moses that he stood before the Holy One, blessed be he, and he stood upon holy ground. The appropriate sponsors to take off his sandals. You know, in some places, like in Moss, they're required, I guess, from my understanding, to take off your shoes there, taking off your sandals. Now, let me ask you a question. Was the ground he was standing on, was, was the earth in general sacred or holy? Where was What was holy about it? God's presence there. So it was not the actual ground or earth that was holy, but the presence of God that made this time, made this place, made this location holy. In our Western society, we use holy as a regular byword. At work, I hear all the time, holy cow, holy this, holy that. So finally, I got fed up and I asked one of the workers, I said, what's holy mean? A blank stare and a few mumbling, or uh, I guess I don't know. We just use holy left and right in our society without even knowing what it means. So let's discuss what does holy mean? Holy, the Hebrew word kadosh, hagios in Greek, has the idea of it being separate. Now, not just plain just being separate. Yes, that would be, a, a, I guess, a, a possibility to use, but really it has two parts. It means being separate from the profane, the common, and being set apart unto God. Separate from the profane and separated unto God or set apart. So it's twofold. Setting apart from the profane, setting apart to holiness or to God. And the idea here is you're separating, you're making a distinction. So uh, since most of the people here are the ladies, let me ask you ladies, do you have special silverware or dining ware you only use on special occasions? Yes? That's holy. In, in, a, in a kind of unholy way. <laughs> it's set apart, isn't it? It's set apart, and that's what God wants in our lives is a set-apart life. So to set apart from the profane or common and set apart unto God. Now, by way of application, we need to cultivate a holy ear as well as acknowledging God's presence in all aspects of our life. Holiness should not be compartmentalized. You know what I mean by that? It's not like, okay, I have my work, uh, work week here, I have my Shabbat day here, and then I go home, I have my sports life here, and then I go over here and I compartmentalize and I'll have my life maybe with the kids, maybe my wife with, with my time with the wife, with the dog. So you compartmentalize your life and, and, you're not, and you're different each segment. We should be the same all the time. So holiness is really a transformative effect upon all people. So you see me here, you'll, I act the same way at work. How I work here, or how I speak here is how I speak at work, or how I speak in a leisure activity. There's no difference. That should be you and I. So holiness should not be compartmentalized, 
But uh, every day, in every way, in every endeavor, in every speech. So this month, let's pay close attention to what we hear to or listen to. The next two months, let's discipline our lives to have holy ears. It's really easy. Have you ever been in a, in a place, a work environment, where there's a lot of profanity going on? It's so easy to just go along and maybe hit yourself with a hammer. Boy, sometimes those words scare you because they, they came in your ear and out, out your mouth. Be careful what you listen to. Let's have holy ears as we prepare this month, or starting tomorrow, prepare for our journey to uh, the high holy days. So preparation is very important. So let's not use God's name uselessly is another thing here. I, I, you know what? God's name is a byword in our society. How many times have I heard, oh my, oh my, I get so tired. One time I got so upset with, with one of the employers that kept on saying it, employees, that I walked up and said, you know, how would you feel? What, I asked her, what's your husband's name, John? I said, how would you feel if I went around and said, oh my, John? Well, I said, well, I guess I wouldn't like it. He says, well, I know God, you're using God in a generic sense, but how do you think it's used uselessly like that? How do you think God feels about you using a name uselessly as that? So using it uselessly, you know, the command, do not take the, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain, really has the idea of uselessly. So not taking it uselessly. So let's remove the sandals or implements of listening to God's commands. Let's take the sandals off and offer ears and make sure we have holy ears. So let's resolve our journey this month, and this is a journey, to cultivate a set-apart life daily from profane or common things and intentionally set apart our lives for God's purposes. Let God help himself to your speech. Let God help himself for attitudes, particularly this month. Amen? All right, now if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. A very familiar account. I love, the, I love his Hebrew name, Shmuel. I just, just, it just comes off the lip so good, Shmuel. It's beautiful, Shmuel. All right, chapter 3, verse 1 to 10 and verse 19. This is the fourth point, which is to cultivate a perpetually responsive ear or an ongoing ear. Cultivate a perpetually responsive ear. Now, the boy Shmuel was ministry before Eli, and the word from the Lord is rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And it happened at that time as, as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight began to grow dim, and he could not see well. Uh, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. That the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Hineni, here I am. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. Verse 6. The Lord called yet again, Shmuel. So Samuel rose, went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He named me. But he answered, I did not call. Lie down again. Look at verse 7. Now Shmuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. He arose and went to Eli and said, Hineni, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and that shall be if he calls you, you say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. 
or Daber Adonai Kishemaya Ebedecha. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Verse 10. Then the Lord came and stood. Now look at this. This is interesting. For those of you who have taken my class in, 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 the, in the divine presence of God, we see God here. The Lord came and stood. Now, he probably didn't obviously see him, but I, I like the way this is described. The Lord came and stood. Interesting. He came and stood and called his other times, Shmuel, Shmuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Deber kishim ebedeka. You know, he called himself a servant or a slave. I hope we see ourselves as that. And the Lord said to Samuel, and it goes on and on, verse 10. So we see that, that Samuel was called by the Lord here. And he did not yet know the Lord. Now, in this familiar account of the calling of a priest, prophet, and judge, but it's very interesting, Samuel had those three roles, that God chose a superlative servant who had innocent and tender ears to match his heart. Thinking Eli the priest had called him, Samuel beatily came to beck and call, only discovered that no man had called him. Cognizant that it was Adonai who was calling the boy, Eli informed Samuel what to say if he heard the voice again. So Adonai called a third time. He said, speak, for your servant is listening. Unfortunately, uh, Eli did not cultivate a a perpetually responsive ear, nor did he rein in his son's wicked lives. Turn to chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, and we'll see this, because there's an interesting passage that the Lord speaks to, to, to Eli. 1 Samuel 2, 27. Then a man of God came to Eli. Now, you notice that he said a man of God. Isn't it interesting how so many times in Scripture that's an unnamed man or a woman? I think that's fascinating. Unnamed. Then a man of God came to Eli and said, Thus says the Lord, did I not reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and bondage to Pharaoh's house? And did I not make a choice between them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests? I'll go back up to verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declared, I did indeed say that your house and house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Now listen to this. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. See that there? Eli did not have that same attitude that, uh, that Samuel was, was having. So uh, we see that an unnamed prophet gave a scathing rebuke of how Eli honored his sons over Hashem. In contrast, in verse 19, go back to 3 now, verse 19, this is, this is really where I want to get the heart at this particular point, a perpetually listening ear. 19, thus Shmuel grew and the Lord was with him. And look at this, let none of his words fail. Literally, did not have any of his words fall to the ground. Just that idea of, of catching everything that God would say, not letting them fall to the ground. I like that. That should be us. We should people that as soon as we hear God say something, we obediently go and do it. We obey that word. Not just let it fall uselessly to the ground, but be good servants, be, good, uh, be a good evan, a good servant that will take the word of God and, and, and actually do what he asks us to do. So we see by contrast in verse 19, Samuel let none of his words fall to the ground. He had reckless abandon 
to God's word. Reckless abandon to God's word. Not just uh, I'll occasionally obey, but perpetually obeying. By way of application, what does that have to do with you and I? We need to cultivate a perpetually or ongoing responsive ear to respond in obedience and accomplish what we are told to do, even if it's difficult or even if it's a hard word to do, to obey. If you, uh, you've probably heard of Oswald Chambers, right? My utmost for his highest, a fabulous devotional. He, this is what he said, quote, If you have never heard a hard word from the Lord, I doubt you have ever heard God say anything at all. Whoa, he speaks some pretty hard things. The appropriate response to the summon call of God is always, he nanny, behold, here I am, speak. That's what I always like to use when I was taking MSI classes, they'd call my name and say, he nanny. <laughs> Just love doing that. <laughs> so uh, responsive. So it should always be he nanny, not occasionally, but always. In verse 20, the result in verse 20 and let's look at verse 20 again because I think it's just, it's, it's incredible. It's in verse 19, he said, he let none of his words fall or fail, fall to the ground. In verse 20, and all Yisrael from Don even to Beersheba knew that Shmuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. You see that? When they saw him obeying everything he said, they said, ah, here's a man who practices what he preaches. Here's a man who doesn't allow his words to fall to the ground. You know what? He must be a prophet. He let none of his words fall to the ground. So he listened perpetually to God's voice and responded without letting his words fall. Oh, that we adopt this and have perpetually listening ears of that sort. Oh, that we would have this character trait always. But particularly this month, let us try to ongoing, whatever he says, to obey. Let's just not wait until the very end and then all of a sudden get ready at the last minute. Let's make this a great preparation for uh, the month of Tishrei. So we've looked at cultivating an attentive ear. We looked at cultivating an obedient ear. We've looked at cultivating a holy ear. Point four, we cultivate a perpetually responsive ear. Now our fifth point is cultivate a sensitive ear. If you turn to 1 Kings 19, a very, it should be a very familiar uh, Background here, uh, remember Elijah was out in Mount Carmel, Har Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, were they're trying to see who is the proper God, who is the real God here. Yehovahe or the Baal? And Baal was, was a god of, of thunder and clouds and things like that. In fact, they, they found in Rosh Hashanah, they found uh, several idols with this guy with this hand cocked back like this, and there was a, one, once upon a time a, a lightning bolt in his hand. So uh, remember that uh, the Elijah said, whoever is God, let him start this fire from heaven. Right? You remember that story? Okay. Well, after this happened, of course, the fire came down and, and destroyed the altar, the left up the water, the, all, everything was destroyed. And the people said, the Lord, he is God. Yehovah, he is God. But the very next chapter, chapter 19, Jezebel says something interesting. Look at 19.1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Eliyahu had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. So he had this mountaintop experience. So what did he do next? He ran. 
Mountaintop experiences are often followed by trials, aren't they? So he ran. And he didn't run just anywhere. In verse, in verse 9, he, he, there he goes to actually to, uh, to Horeb, the same mountain where the Ten Commandments and the Ten Words and things like that, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb. So verse 9, he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came him, and he said to him, What are you doing there, Elijah? They say, there? What are you doing here? What does that imply? God was there with him. Wow. What are you doing here? Not there. Here. With me. Here. Paul. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he has this, it's interesting, he has this little speech going here. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken the covenant, turned out, burned down their altars, and killed their prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He said it several times. You must have memorized this. <laughs> have you ever done that? You memorize some speech, so whenever God said you can just say it. It's like a memorized speech. Who was it? Was he memorizing? Who was it? He was memorizing the thing. Yeah. Verse 11. So, verse 11. So he said, Go forth and stand. So God said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before. And, and the Lord was passing by. And you, you've heard this before. A great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So strong wind. We had a wind a few, few years ago that knocked down power lines. Remember, we were out of power for a long time. The wind came in a tremendous uh, uh, flow and fury and destroyed rocks. So a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, the wind and earthquake. Have you ever been in an earthquake? I've been in an earthquake, and the whole ground shakes, and there's upheaval and things fall on top of you. You, you. you walk like a drunken man or something. You can't hardly walk. An earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12, and after that, a fire. We just had fire in the national parks. It's still going raging out of control in California. But the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire came... And it came out when Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his mantle. And he went out and stood by the entrance of the cave. Behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing, Elijah? Do you hear that small voice? All these loud sounds and clamorous uh, trees and fire and earthquake. And yet, God wasn't in that. It was just a still, small blowing breeze or a whisper. Then he said, I have been very zealous. So he said, What are you doing here? I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They broke down thy altars and killed thy prophets with a sword. And I alone have left, and they seek my life to take it away. So just we just got these hearing that again. He memorized the speech here. Verse 15, and he said, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you'll anoint Hazael, king of Aram. And he goes on with this message. My point here uh, is, is a fact of, of sensitivity to how God speaks. Cultivate a sensitive ear. Uh, such a great display of God amid the theophany before the Israelites we see in, in Exodus 18 19. In this passage here, we have a familiar count. You know, in, in Exodus 19, he had all the thunder and the, the black smoke and the people in the herd of shofars and people were afraid. All the sound and fury and, and, and lots of large, bigger than life sounds and motions. And, and they were fearful. And here, some similar things happen with the fire and the smoke and the earthquake. Some large displays of God's uh, power. 
So in, uh, so in chapter 19, he fled from Jezebel. And of course, he fled to Mount Sinai to be a witness of display from God. Now, Elijah had already experienced all this power from the prophets of Baal in an earlier chapter. He'd already experienced all this. And so perhaps he was like expecting God always to work this way with loud sounds and blasts. And just when he said that he was in the wind and all this tremendous upheaval, but he wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake with all the, the extra rocks falling around. He wasn't in the, the, the fire, but he was in the still, small wind. And I think Elijah maybe starting to understand something here. It's interesting that many Jewish commentators like Milgram and Sarna identify Elijah as a second Moses because of these events atop Mount Sinai. It's very interesting. He almost portrays like a second, uh, second Moses. Could it be that Elijah had grown accustomed to God's presence and great displays of power? They became addicted, addicted to these outward displays of action. Could he have been addicted? Could we be addicted to the way God speaks in us? Are we waiting for God to have this giant, bigger-than-life actions? Because how many times when, God, when you've heard God speak, was it something loud and boisterous? It was more like a still, small voice. Now, sometimes it may sound like a lar- large sound, but it's God speaking to your heart through the Ruach HaKadosh. So God was not present within these lar- large displays, but in a whisper or blowing sound of blowing wind. By application, what are our expectations of God's voice? Do we expect that his voice will always be loud or dramatic or come in the same way? Do we expect God to speak in the same way and same manner? Oswald Chambers states it this way. If we expect God to speak in the same manner all the time, we may be assured that he will not speak in that way again. Because are you being addicted? Are you, are you like being familiar, over-familiar the way God speaks? Because God doesn't want to be a pattern or he does not want to be taken for granted. And if we sit there and think we could always get, this is the way God always speaks to me this way. What if he speaks another way? We're going to miss it because we're programmed in. We have the little blinders. We, this is the way God speaks to me. But God wants to break out of that mold and wants to speak to us in many different ways, not just the way we expect. So this month, let's develop a sensitive ear and let God's word come to us in the way he chooses, not in our pre-programmed preconceptions. Now, here's the caveat here. Aren't we bombarded with a cacophony of sounds in our society? We are bombarded with a cacophony of competing sounds, all clamoring to be acknowledged and heard. But God does not want us to be so accustomed to any one way of communicating with us We too can begin to take for granted his voice or worse, choosing selective hearing. No, we need to cultivate a sensitive ear to wait for him. God may choose to speak to us in a different way. He may speak through, as I teach the kids sometimes at uh, at junior congregation, God speaks in many different ways. One way he could do is through a little flower. And you look at the flower and and you you just sense God saying, you know, I love you. You're precious my sight. Or he may be in a rebuke of a spouse. A little bit uh, not so good. You rebuke it that way. Maybe uh, God will speak another way. He may speak to another servant. Uh, I, the, the worst case, I think, is, is uh, a certain prophet had his donkey speak to him. I, I would not want that particular... Uh, he was arguing with his donkey. I found that was rather interesting here. So, so we, we first talked about seeking 
uh, our first point, we talked about seeking God's voice. Now we're looking at a new point, which is seeking God's glory. Seeking God's glory. So let's turn to Exodus 19. You did not expect this much looking through Scripture, did you? <laughs> Exodus 19, verse 16 first. So it came about on the third day, there was a morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud about Mount Sinai and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Okay? And if you look back here in Exodus 19, verse 3, I'll read a few more passages here. And, the, and Moshe went up to God, and the Lord called for him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. By the way, uh, I did a study once on eagles. It's not the bald eagle. Bald eagle is only indigenous to America. It's really something like, uh, like, uh, like a sea eagle, another kind of eagle, like the golden eagle that he's referring to, not, not a bald eagle. So take the bald eagle out of your mind here. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my own possession among all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So in cultivating, uh, uh, seeking God's glory, the first point we'll look at is cultivating seeking God's presence. We talked about seeking God's voice. Now we're going to look at seeking God's presence. In verse 19, we see a great, disp great display of God's power in the theophany. We see the, the shofars and smoke uh, and before Israel. In verse 3 to 8, Moses declares his people's commands. And then verse 8 is very interesting. He said, then all the people respond together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. Boy, that's a, that's a great thing. I wish they would have done that. I wish we can do that, right? We, shall, we will all do what the Lord has spoken. In verse 21, the Israelites desired to seek God's face and presence, but God had to warn them. Moses tell the people, don't go beyond the boundaries of the mountain, lest they die, lest they squeeze in to see God. However, they had limitations enforced with a death penalty if they went too close. So Moses told the people, don't go past the foot of the mountain here or you'll surely die. They had the desire to both gaze upon God and to obey what he commanded, yet they was not to cross the line and face their death. By way of application for New Covenant Yeshua followers, we too often place artificial barriers around seeking God's presence daily in our lives. In our society, we're just too busy being present. Let's be honest. Sometimes life gets in the way and we don't seek God's presence. That's a problem. It's a bane in our society. It's too, no one has any time for anything. But truly, you only make as much time as you, you decide to make yourself for yourself for time. But here we place too many artificial barriers around his life. So we need to purposely, we need to have kavanah, intentionality, to seek God's presence. Because we're just that far away from eternity. That far. So we need to make sure that we seek his presence. Our, and our business may take the form of, of overscheduled work schedules, misplaced priorities, inordinate time around entertainment, Artificial barriers allowing us to gaze upon God and His presence daily in our lives? I don't think so. We get too many other things we get involved with. But that should not be the trade. How do we seek His presence? Yes, through the reading of the Scripture, through prayer, through these disciplines. Yes, we get close to God that way. But there's more. And Psalm 46.10 is a very interesting line. It reads as follows. 
Be still and know I'm God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Be still? In my busy life, be still? Be still and know that I am God. We need to take time for a business and be, be still. Just pause. Relax. Listen. I remember when I, went, I used to work in a national park system. I used to preach outdoors um, in, a, in a national park setting. And then I get to go out and look at the mountains. I remember just looking at the mountains, just peacefully, and just weeping and sobbing out of the beauty and heard God speak to me. It's so beautiful because I took the time to stop and look and give him my time. You know, that's the most precious commodity we have, is giving him our time as a size of our obedience, giving our time. On our journey this month, let's endeavor to give our God the most precious commodity we think we own, our time sitting before him in silence. God is not in the habit of shouting to his servants, but in face-to-face encounters, whisperings or small voices, remember the times that you heard God speak to your heart. I'm sure you've all had times. You could all give an example of how you heard God speak to your heart. But it wasn't normally a big, loud voice. God is not having a shouting of servants, but face-to-face counters, whisperings, small voices. Now, when God does speak, sometimes it does sound like shouting, doesn't it? I remember one time my wife and I were, do- were doing a, 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 another kind of a parade down there, and I was passing out little scriptures, you know, some tracks, you know. Uh, and I was going down the road, and all the... Fanfare, loud noises. I heard, heard the Lord say, Peter, go give that man sitting on that lawn chair one of your literature, your, your tracks. And I thought, why? Well, I can't be God. I can't be God. I said, go over there and give that man a track. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I turned him off because I thought maybe she had said it. But it sounded like a shouting, but it was just it was in my heart. So maybe you have an experience like that where God spoke, but it sounded like shouting. And yet that's what God often does. He speaks to our spirit, but it sounds like it's a loud sound, but it really isn't. It's to our heart. So another way, and this is I have something I've recently discovered. This is really, I really like. And uh, uh, in, in the cable TV program called Daystar, it's a cable affiliate, they have a program called Reflections. And I DVD it, uh, DVR it, at, uh, and it, what it has is beautiful music with beautiful scenes like national parks or natural places. And they have scripture verse that fades in, fades out, fades in. And you're, you're, raptured, you're enraptured by the sound, by seeing beautiful things. I'm just sitting there going, oh God, how he makes this beautiful creation. Oh God. That's another way to sit in God's presence. Whatever you choose, find a way purposefully, with kavanah, with intentionality, to sit before or stand before his presence to be in it, to be in his presence. So we've talked about seeking God's presence, seeking God's goodness. So we talked about God's presence and glory. What does this glory mean? You know, we talk about God's glory all the time. Abraham Joshua Heschel talked about a description of what it means. And what I want to read to you is a book that I've read that's really loved. I really love Abraham Joshua Heschel. I've become a Heschelite. <laughs> I love his books. It's a book called God in Search of Man, A Philosophy of Judaism. And he has said something really uh, incredible about God's glory and God's uh, uh, presence. On page 81, he says this, What is the nature meaning of glory? Or as we frequently call in latter times, the Shekinah, not the Shekinah, the Shekinah. Since the glory was often revealed in a cloud and its appearance compared with devouring fire, it was sometimes characterized as purely external manifestation 
entirely divested of internal contents, an exhibition of power, never of spirit. Yet such a conception is erroneous. Is it possible to substitute fire or cloud for glory in Haggai 2.7? I will fill this house with glory. In other words, he says, could you substitute glory with cloud? I will fill this house with a cloud. Or the words of Psalmist in 85.10, Surely his salvation is nigh to them that fear him, that his cloud may dwell in our land. Is that what he's getting at? It is, moreover, uh, conceivable that this is the, the, the seraphim exclaimed, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his cloud. That's a banner we say. Is the whole earth is full of his cloud? So what he goes on to say, and I'm going to make this short here, the glory is the presence, not the essence of God. An act rather than a quality. A process, not a substance. Mainly the glory manifests itself as a power overwhelming, overwhelming the world. The glory reflects the abundance of good and truth, the power that acts in nature and history. So the whole earth is full of his glory. It means the whole earth is full of his presence. Now, yes, kavod can have other meanings, some brightness and splendor. When we hear about the God's glory, the glory cloud led Israel through, but God's presence, his manifest presence, his manifest presence at a given location. Now, uh, in Exodus 33, turn to Exodus 33 for a minute. In Exodus 33, when Moses is trying to spare God's people, we read in verse 14, he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said, verse 15, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from here. For how can we know that I have found favor in your sight, and I and thy people? Is it not by you going with us that we, I, and thy people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Now look at verse 18. Moses said, I pray thee, show me your glory. Whoa, show me your glory. Now, the very next, uh, the response of God is, is fascinating. Show me your glory, verse 18. Look at verse 19. And, and the Lord said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Wait a minute. I want, I want to see your glory. You're going to let your goodness pass before me. Wow. Moses is asking for glory. And God said, I want to let my goodness pass before you. I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion whom I will show compassion. And he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and live. Then the Lord, verse 21, the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me. You can stand there on the rock. It will come about that when my glory is passing by or my presence is passing by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is another part of that theophany we are talking about because obviously does God have a back? Does he have a face? He's using accommodating language for us to understand his presence going by. Uh, but the point is that God showed us, showed Moses his goodness when Moses was asking for his glory. God's glory is basically his manifest presence at a given time and place. When the glory cloud led Israel, it was his manifest presence accompanied Israel. Glory can also mean weightiness. We may say he carries weight. 
reputation or power, as well as splendor. His presence shows up in a bright pillar or cloud. Notice in verse 18, Moses asked him to show his glory. Now, I looked at some Jewish commentators that, that I've been using for another class. Nehum Sarna posed a question in his commentary. What was Moses asking? He elaborated several possibilities, including Rashi. Rashi understood Moses to be literally asking God to show him his personage, whereas Maimonides explained that Moses was inquiring about God's character attributes. But you know, I don't think it has to be either one. I think it's both. I think it's both. I think both. He wanted to see his person, but he also wanted to know who he, who he is, his essence. And God said, you want to see my glory? I'll let all my goodness pass by you. I'll let by my mercifulness, my kindness, pass by you. So God responded that Moses could see God's goodness. Again, in verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name yud heh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, what's interesting here is God's name, yud Vave, the, the tetragrammation of, the, of those letters. Uh, we're not sure really how it's pronounced. But it really, the, uh, coming from an idea of, of hayah, if you want to look for a root word. But what I find fascinating is the fact that God's name, in a sense, is an active verb. We want to describe God by a thing, by a, a noun. But God's word is really described by a verb, what he does, not who he is. You know, in the West, we want to say, well, we want to see what God is. I'll believe in God if it comes down and stands before me. God said, you know, I'm an active verb, so to speak. I am constantly working. All my goodness, is goodness more of a verb, isn't it? My kindness, it's more of a verb. My compassion, more of a verb. So God, so, so Moses wanted to see if it's true that, uh, that uh, what Maimonides is saying, that God is, uh, Moses wanted to see a person, a noun, and God said, I'll show you my verbiage. I'll show you who I am by what I do. Because no man can see God and live, as he said to Moses later on. So what does it mean by goodness? Tov, beautiful, bountiful, well-pleasing, appealing, profitable. How about gracious? Kanan, to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior, to favor unconditionally, to bestow gracious acts to those in need. Compassion, Racham, tenderness, mercy. Uh, uh, the Hebrew thought is the idea of womb tenderness. The idea of racham is it's often spoken of as like an idiom. So talking about the womb is talking about compassion, tender womb care for your young. I think that's a beautiful word for compassion. Racham, to have womb tenderness. God has womb tenderness for you and I. But now we're bombarded with commercials that have us believing the lie. You deserve it. You deserve a break. You have the right to. Such messages reinforce the false notion that perhaps we can earn something from God. All these things, goodness, gracious, and compassion, and goodness, those are things God's willing wanting to bestow, but somehow or other our society is saying, you deserve that. You deserve that. But we know that we do not deserve any of that. By way of application, let us receive all his goodness, grace, and compassion he bestows upon us and lay aside all the pretensions of earning anything from God this month of Elul and beyond. Now, at the end of this passage in Exodus 34, look at verse 29. This, I think, is a most amazing thing. Exodus 34, 29. And it came about that when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and there are two tablets of the testimony where Moses' hand is coming down from the mountain, 
that Moshe did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So that when Aharon and the sons of Israel saw Moshe beholding the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come near him. Wow. Moses had no clue because he can't see himself, right? He's coming down from the mountain and his face is glowing. Now, you know what? And this is going to sound almost incredible to think, but you know, the more time we spend in God's presence, the more our face is going to glow. It may not be like shooting rays of light out, but they will know by our lifestyle. I've actually had uh, uh, known people who, were, who, who said, you know, I asked that guy if he, was a, if he was a believer because his face seemed to shine. If you spend time in the presence of God, people will know it. And here, they said they were afraid to come to him. So in verse 31, Moses called to them, and Aharon and the elders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went up before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, which he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone or shot out light. So Moses would replace the veil of his face and it went in to speak with the Lord. I think that's a fascinating topic because the more you spend time in God's presence, the more other people is by way of witness. You know, if our faces glowed like that, there would, there'd be, we'd have more opportunities for people to say, what's different about you? Why, why is your face shining? What's different about you? Rather than trying to conjure up some kind of witness opportunity, that face would be a witness, would it not? So... In, in this verse, we see that Moses spent 40 days and nights in the presence of Yudhe He was unaware that his face had intense splendor. His face shone or threw out rays of light. They were taken back by divine exposure. The remedy? Veil his face. What about us? Is there an application? Can you think of a passage in the Brit Shah that talks about Moses' face shining? It's actually 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 18. And I'll read that for you. You don't have to turn to it. I've had you turn to so many verses. In 1 Corinthians, reads this, verse 13. We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not perceive the culmination of what was transitory. But their minds were closed for this day that when the reading of the, the first covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it's set aside only in Messiah. Even to this day, whenever Moshe is read, a veil lies over the hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, you all, did you ever look at the, the titles of the songs he was written by when we have songs up here? Uh, uh, Kurt, uh, uh, Kirk Dearman has a lot of our songs that we sing that he's penned, and I know him personally. Uh, uh, it's an incredible guy. He and his wife uh, now live uh, in, in Nashville. He had a beautiful song concerning this. And excuse me for saying this, but I'm going to sing to you this last verse. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into His same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. We are with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror 
the glory of the Lord. Who's that glory coming from? Us or him? We have the mirror. We're reflecting his glory. So when people see us and that's what's different, don't say, oh, well, thank you. I know I worked real hard at this. No, he gets the glory, right? We're just reflectors. We're just reflectors. And uh, so now we're turned to the third and last major heading, I'm uh, uh, which is emulating God's holiness. Emulating God's holiness. Let's turn to Leviticus 19. 1 to 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to all the congregations of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father and shall keep my Shabbats. I am the Lord your God. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, we've heard that many times before. Be holy as I am holy. That's that's an idea of emulating God's holiness. The first point is cultivate a holy lifestyle that reflects and honors God's holy character. Our lifestyle should be at that mirror that reflects and honors God's holy character. And you might be thinking, well, why, did, why wasn't this, why didn't you talk about God's uh, obedience and holiness earlier? Well, I think this is, there's a point here, and that is this. We need to be able to hear God's voice first, get in his presence, and then we will lovingly want to obey him. If you start and turn the cart before the horse and say, obey, then you're not going to do it out of love. You're going to do it because you have to. But when we get in God's presence and love him and, and sense his presence and sense his love, the natural outgrowth of that is to lovingly obey, to lovingly obey, because we want to. Now, yeah, there's times when we may not necessarily want to go do something, but in the end, we obey because we love him. So I believe we seek his voice in his presence, but we only naturally seek his will in loving obedience. Now, uh, what's interesting here is uh, there's, a, there's a clause we need to understand. Be holy, for I am holy. All right? But the first part is, you shall be holy. If he just stopped there, you shall be holy, that's almost like, you shall be holy. But is there another part to that sentence? For I, the Lord, am holy. Do you see that there's, a, there's something really radical here? Since God himself is characterized as holy or set apart from, set apart to in that sense, as a people chosen by God to be his own inheritance, doesn't it follow that we too must reflect this honor, reputation, and character? Doesn't it follow? There's a historical account of Alexander the Great. You all know Alexander the Great. He uh, uh, marched across the, the, the Europa and conquered the, the known world at that time, or most of it anyway. He had a soldier, now his name was Alexander the Great. He had another soldier named Alexander who deserted on him. They captured this gentleman, brought him back, and he faced Alexander the Great. And he's, oh boy, I'm going to get it now. Alexander come up and he said, young man, what is your name? Mr. Alexander, my name, my name is Alexander. Change your ways or change your name. He did not want his name tarnished by someone else's bad behavior. And how often does God's character take a rap because one of us has had a moment of weakness and God's character was tainted in behalf of his name. In Ezekiel 36 is a very sad account. 
Uh, you don't have to turn to this. I'll read it. Ezekiel 36, 16 following. says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, while the house of Israel lived in their land, they defiled it with their conduct and actions. Now, we like to think of profanity. We like to think that the defiling is with their uh, lips, perhaps. But here he says, conduct and actions. I think more often than not, when we have a problem with our conduct and action, that's how we profane God's name more than anything else. Verse 18, so I poured out my wrath on him because of the blood they had shed in the land. If you drop over in verse 20, they came to the nations where they went and they profaned my holy name because it was said about them, well, these are the people of Yudhe yet they had to leave his land. <laughs> then I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. Now listen to this in verse 22. It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, for, for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am Yudhe the declaration of the Lord God, when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. Do you see what he's saying? Be holy because I am holy. If you're going to be part of me, if you're going to be my inheritance, I want you to be like myself in a sense of holiness, set apart from and set apart into God. It seems only right that if we are called by his name that we ought to live up to a standard of holiness, even though we stumble many ways. If we spend time in his presence, we want everybody to begin to have an accumulative and transformative effect upon our attitudes, behaviors, and actions. Uh, Leviticus 10.3 says this, I will show my holiness to those who are near me. I will reveal my glory before all the people. That's when, the, when uh, Avihu and Avihu uh, uh, died before the Lord's presence because they offered strange fire. He's saying, those who come near me got to be holy. Now, those are priests. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't there a passage in Brit Shah saying that we are priests? Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That should be what motivates us to be holy in that sense is the fact that we want to represent him. As a matter of fact, you remember uh, Michael Jordan used to have a commercial, a Nike commercial that said, be like Mike. We ought to be like God in a sense of our actions should display that holiness, that attitude toward him that says that he is everything that the world should want. So we talked about cultivating a holy lifestyle that reflects and honors God's character. The second point Cultivate a holy lifestyle that reflects and honors God's character in my neighbor. Not only should it affect God and his character, but it also should be in my neighbor. Obedience to God's commands should flow from the love of God. Yeshua himself said, John 59, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Keep my commandments, you will stay in my love. So in Leviticus 19.80, the second half of that is love you, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The idea of love, again, reflects his holy character. And finally, cultivate a holy lifestyle through purified lips. And we don't have time to cover this. This is the last point, actually. I'm surprised we went to it. But we have this banner up here. We sing it every Shabbat. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Zevaoth, Milokoha, Aretz, Kevado. Holy, holy, holy is a Lord of hosts or large armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
the whole earth is full of his glory. And he said, oh, woe is me. I've got unpure lips. I live among people who's unpure. There's no remedy. But then an angel flew down, a seraphim flew down with a coal and touched his lips and burned it. And he said, your sin has been t- removed. We should live with purified lips in such the way that we care for what we say. So during this month, we're preparing to meet with our God because we're on a journey, whether you you like it or not. We're on a journey together. Next month, which is tomorrow, Elul. We're ready a whole month for Tishrei. Let's be a people prepared. So I'll review for you the final thing. Seeking God's voice means cultivating a attentive ear, cultivating an obedient ear, cultivating a holy ear, cultivating a perpetually responsive ear, cultivating a sensitive ear. Second point, seeking God's glory. Cultivate, cultivate seek God's glorious splendor. Cultivate, seek God's goodness. Cultivate, spend time in God's presence. And finally, emulating God's holiness Cultivate a holy lifestyle that reflects and honors God's holy character. Cultivate a holy lifestyle that reflects and honors God's character my neighbor. Cultivate a holy lifestyle through purified lips. Now, you're not going to remember all these points, but I do want you to know this. We've talked about a lot of things today, more stuff than you'll probably ever remember, and that's all right. Whatever the Ruach HaGadosh has touched upon your heart today to start enacting in your life, let's start doing that together as a congregation. We're talking about we here. I'm part of you. We need to get prepared for next month. You know, Rabbi Howard is going to come up next week and talk about probably being prepared. Be like the Boy Scout motto. Be prepared. As you're going to a journey toward Tishrei, let us all prepare ourselves to behold, to meet our God. On Rosh Hashanah, the days of awe, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and finally Simchat Torah. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have taken us on this journey. We started last year, Rosh Hashanah, and we got all the way around, and we're about ready to enter it again. Another month and a few days. So, Father, we are praying that you would make us a people prepared to meet you on this journey. As we start again, start afresh, Rosh Hashanah. Thank you, Father, that you've given us your word. You have not left us to ourselves. You've not left us for our own devices to figure out how to be prepared. But, Father, through the examples of your choice servants, superlative servants, you have given us a template. You've given us lives to emulate, to put into practice, so that we could be a people prepared to meet you. And may this year be the most meaningful of the high holy days we've had as we prepare to meet you. In Yeshua's name, amen.